So I had been a Christian for a couple of decades when someone handed me a book with a title that really surprised me. This was a Christian book. This was the early 90s, and the book was called Disappointment with God. I don't remember any, many of the details about the content of the book, but I do remember the impact of that title, Disappointment with God. It blew my mind a little bit. I had lived my whole life in the church, and this was really the first time that I knew that you were allowed to feel disappointment with God. I knew that God was holy and good and perfect and wise and loving in all his ways. And, well, how can you be disappointed with someone who's perfect? Without ever having really thought about it, I had assumed my whole life that disappointment with God would be illogical at best and immoral at worst. Who am I to be disappointed with God? But encountering the words of that title, Disappointment with God, on the cover of a book written by a Christian and published by a Christian publishing house, somehow God used that to crack open a false front, a false wall that I had erected between myself and God. The truth was, I had felt disappointment with God. Once I was willing to acknowledge that, I was in a much better position to see God more clearly, see myself more clearly, to read scripture more clearly. And there was a lot more dynamism in my life with Jesus. Now these days, when I read scripture, I can see that actually pretty much everyone who encountered God ended up confused, disappointed, or angry with him at some point or another. I sometimes like to imagine Jesus hanging a sign outside his dwelling that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, son of God, disappointing people since 30 AD. <laughs> this morning's gospel text will bring us up close and personal to the different ways that we can respond to our disappointment with God and the different ways that Jesus responds to us. Before we dive in, a little background. Our gospel passage opens with a question from John the Baptist, who seems like an unlikely candidate to be disappointed by Jesus. John and Jesus were literally womb-to-tomb friends. When John's mother Elizabeth was carrying John in her womb, she encountered Mary, who was carrying Jesus in her womb. And Elizabeth said to Mary, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb, leaped with joy. Before John took his first breath, his little body recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the one appointed by God to save the Jewish people. And when he grew into adulthood, John's confidence in Jesus as the Messiah, as the sent one from God, grew as well. As a boy and as a man, John studied and knew intimately the testimony of Scripture, the law and the prophets that point to the Messiah. When John baptized Jesus, he saw the Holy Spirit descend from heaven in the form of a dove and rest on Jesus. John heard the voice of the Father in heaven speak aloud these words, This is my beloved Son in whom 
I am well pleased. Before and after he baptized Jesus, John devoted his life to pointing to Jesus as the one sent to usher in the kingdom of God. For John, the the arrival of the Messiah meant a glorious day of judgment. Judgment at the social level where the Jewish people would be liberated from Roman oppression and judgment at the heart level where individuals would be called to repentance and into a life of holiness and shalom. John longed for a Messiah whose judgment would usher in God's just and joyful kingdom on earth. But when our gospel story picks up, John the Baptist's joy in the Messiah is faltering. Jesus is perhaps a year into his ministry by now, and John has continued his work of calling the world to repentance and of pointing people toward Jesus. And in keeping with his role as a prophet, John had openly confronted the local king, Herod, about Herod's illicit marriage. In faithfulness to Jesus, John challenged the sexual ethics of his day. He spoke truth to power, and as a result, he is in prison. John's imprisonment was like the first blast of chilly air that precedes a violent storm. This is really the first major gust of displeasure against John and against Jesus. That first year of Jesus' ministry had been well-received. It was a success. (laughs) But as the light of the kingdom of God began breaking into the world, as Jesus preached the word of God to thousands and brought God's miraculous healing touch to hundreds, the darkness of the fallen world started to push back with violence. Now, John's whole life has testified to the Christhood of Jesus. He has spent his life leading people to prepare for the day of judgment by repenting of their sins. But now John himself is being judged and punished by evildoers for speaking righteousness. This is not at all what he expected from the coming of the kingdom of God. The Messiah, Jesus, was supposed to take his winnowing fork and sort out evil from righteousness, establish the reign of God-fearing Jews, and usher in a kingdom of peace and joy. How can John reconcile that with what is happening to him now? And so, John begins to question the identity of Jesus. In verse 2, When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What a poignant question. Brothers and sisters, I know that there are those here today who can identify with John's distress. You too had a meaningful encounter with Jesus as a child or as a young adult. Perhaps for years you walked in faithfulness to him, and you can remember a time when believing in Jesus seemed like a natural part of your life. And yet somehow you find yourself in a season where life is putting its thumb on your faith and pressing in with doubt, disappointment, distress, 
anxiety. Sometimes the pressure on faith comes from our outward circumstances. Maybe there's been an abrupt decline in fortune or in health. Maybe there's been deep disillusionment in a respected institution or a trusted friend. A painful delay in the fulfillment of a deeply cherished hope. Sometimes that pressure comes from within. Perhaps your experience of the life of faith just doesn't measure up to other people's. You don't seem to experience the same joy and fulfillment in Jesus that other people report. Maybe, like John, you're finding that faithfulness to Jesus in the arena of sexual ethics is coming at a high personal cost, higher than anticipated. You might call it a crisis of faith or a dark night of the soul, or a period of deconstruction, but it comes down to this same painful question. Is Jesus the one? Should I continue to put my faith in him, or should I look for another? If that is your question today, if you are troubled in spirit about it, take heart. The Lord sees you, and hears you. Even in the midst of painful disappointment and confusion, Jesus still speaks, and you can still hear his voice. So if you feel some resonance with John in prison, note closely what he does. When John doubts Jesus, when confusion, disappointment cloud his mind, John turns to Jesus. When John doubts Jesus, he turns to Jesus. Even though Jesus is the object of his doubt and his disappointment, John trusts Jesus to respond to him and to respond to him honestly and candidly. Now, how does Jesus respond? Verse 4, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So know what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't get offended in return. He doesn't scold John for caving under pressure. He doesn't apologize or explain everything to John either. But instead, Jesus gently begins to reorient John to reality. He points John toward the tangible, visible evidence that the kingdom of God is breaking through. Jesus reminds John of all the ways that life is aligning with the promises of Scripture for the coming Messiah. Look around you, he said, in the midst of a dark and violent world, the compassion of God is breaking through to the most humble and the most needy on the face of the earth, just as God promised. The blind see, the lame walk, the poor receive the good news. Take heart, John, by the power of God, the compassion of God is changing the world. Then Jesus goes further. John wants honesty from Jesus, and Jesus delivers. Note this. In the prophecies from Isaiah that Jesus has just quoted, 
prophecies about the deaf being able to hear and the mute being able to speak. All of these were, were scattered throughout the, um, the Old Testament, particularly in the prophet Isaiah. John and Jesus both knew that these same texts also included prophecies that when the Messiah comes, prisoners will be set free and captives will be released. Jesus deliberately omits these prophecies when he sends word back to John, who is being held captive in prison. The coming of the kingdom of God is the best news any man, woman, or child can receive. John knows this, and Jesus knows it too. It is the light breaking into darkness. It is the cool water springing up from a dry and barren land. It is the dead returning to life. It is healing and reconciliation and all things being made new. And the kingdom is here now. But Jesus knows what maybe John hasn't realized is that the kingdom is not yet here in its fullness. Until the kingdom comes in its fullness on that last day, that day of judgment that John is looking forward to, pain and darkness and disappointment will continue to coexist alongside the kingdom of God. And not only that, there's a sense in which the coming of the kingdom of God stirs up violence and opposition. Jesus knows that John will not be among the captives freed in this time. He will not be liberated from his unjust imprisonment. Unlike his predecessor, Elijah, John will not escape death to be caught up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Instead, John is going to precede the Messiah, who will himself go to an ignominious, disreputable, vulgar, and violent death. When we bring our disappointment faithfully and honestly into the presence of God, we can trust God to deal faithfully and honestly with us. He will speak to us faithfully and honestly about where the kingdom of God is surpassing our wildest hopes, and he will speak to us faithfully and honestly about where the path into the kingdom means following the Messiah through loss and death. And all of this is summarized in this message of Jesus to John. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. In the original language of our text, the word for offense is scandalon, a stumbling block that linked to the idea of falling away. You stumble and you fall back. Other translations of verse 6 read, Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. And isn't it odd to think of people falling away from faith in God, falling away from the Christian faith because of Jesus? We usually think of people falling away from Faith in God because of a bad experience in the church or sin in the church or hypocrisy or maybe people just develop other attachments. But this is what Jesus says. Blessed is the one who does not fall away because of me. Now, an offense is a feeling of resentment brought about by a perceived insult 
to or disregard for oneself or one's standards or principles. And Jesus, truly understood through the words of Scripture, is legitimately offensive. That is, Jesus is the one person, the one man in all the history of the universe, who is completely pure, true, holy, uncorruptible. By contrast, you and me and everyone else is kind of a mess. Compared to Jesus, all our standards of goodness and holiness are naturally off base. Our principles are off kilter. Our values are out of whack. Our expectations are short-sighted. To flawed human beings, the truth, beauty, and the purity and the holiness of God will be perceived as an insult to our principles, and we will feel disregarded as the things that we hold dear are held to be less important, less real, less true than those that the Lord orients us to. In fact, if Jesus is never challenging my standards or principles, chances are good that the Jesus I'm following is a fantasy or an idea. And there's more than a chance that I'm not seeing or hearing him as he is in his glory. But when that moment of offense or disillusionment or disappointment creates a crisis in us, when disillusionment and disappointment press in on our faith in Jesus, one of two things can occur. Either we will respond to that pressure by pulling back and turning away and falling away, or we may allow that pressure to crack open our false expectations of God our false expectations of ourself, our false expectations around our life, and allow God to pour in the reality of the kingdom and the blessing of God to flow into our lives. John chose the latter. John couldn't sort out the identity of Jesus on his own. He couldn't prop up, muster up his own faith. But what he could do and what he did do was turn to Jesus. And hear what Jesus has to say of John, how Jesus responds to John. Jesus begins by affirming John's role as the last and greatest of the prophets who foretold the coming kingdom. In verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John had an awesome calling. He lived at that great hinge of history at the exact moment in time when the kingdom of God began breaking through. And none of the other prophets had that privilege. Only John was blessed in this way. And by God's grace, John was faithful to that call, even when he suffered doubt and disillusionment. But then Jesus goes on to say something astonishing. The, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The least person in this coming kingdom is greater than John, who is the greatest ever born of women up until this time. John didn't live to see Jesus die a violent and disgraced death at the hands of those he offended, and he did not live to see Jesus resurrected. 
John lived long enough to meet the Messiah. He lived long enough to understand that trusting the Messiah involves suffering, disappointment, and death. But he did not live long enough to see the Messiah lead all the way through disappointment, suffering, and death and emerge victorious on the other side, eternally alive, eternally glorified. But you and I have the glorious privilege of living life in a world that has seen the resurrection of Jesus. The blessing of God is open to you and me in a way that was not open even to John the Baptist in his time on earth. Jesus is talking about us. Jesus says even those among us who are the least impressive in the kingdom of God are greater than John. Even those of us with the weakest faith and the smallest role in God's kingdom are inexpressibly blessed. We live in the aftermath of the resurrection, the one act in history sufficient to secure for us all the spiritual riches of heaven and the power of Jesus to sustain us here on earth. Blessed is the one who does not turn away offended when Jesus leads us to die, die to our expectations, die to ourselves that we might live with him. John, in a sense, was sent on to die ahead of Jesus. By faith and grace, he did so. But how blessed are we who get to follow Jesus, to follow the Messiah to death? Blessed are those whom Jesus leads all the way through disappointment, confusion, and death itself and into the fullness of the kingdom. It's a hard thing to die to our own expectations, our own assumptions, our values, principles. It's a humbling thing to turn to Jesus and ask him to heal us and show us a better way. In the final section of our passage, Jesus describes for us what it looks like to be offended by Jesus and to turn away. John was offended and turned toward Jesus. But in verses 16 and 17, Jesus contrasts the response of John to the response of the world at large. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, the generation he's speaking of, it's not a generation like we're used to talking about it. He's not referring to the equivalent of Gen X or millennials or boomers. He's speaking of all the people who have lived on the earth since John began his ministry up until right now, today, as one generation. He's speaking about all of us, people in Jesus and John's day, you and me right here in this room. And he's not speaking so much of individual persons, but of kind of the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. What is the spirit of the generation that we are in? It's a, a generalization identifying the spirit of the age into which Jesus has come. And he tells us the spirit of this age is one that is irrational and unremittingly hostile to Jesus and his kingdom. When Jesus failed to meet John's expectations, John turned to Jesus in faith and allowed Jesus to reset his expectations around spiritual realities. But this generation, Jesus says, does no such thing. This generation rejects the reality of the kingdom of God. And not only that, we try to recreate 
our own reality and then demand that Jesus conform to it. This is a generation of foolish and inconsistent children driven by their own whims and never satisfied. Verse 18, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man, come, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Neither John's fasting nor Jesus's feasting satisfies them. Our generation, yours and mine, from the time of King Herod onward, lives in a state of perpetual exasperation with Jesus and with those who are faithful to him. And at times that offense rises to the level of lethal violence. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violence take it by force. When the Herods of our generation play music, they want God himself to fall in line or pay the consequence. It's dance, monkey, dance to the Son of God. And nothing but complete capitulation will satisfy, even when it can't be done. <laughs> Those who insist on calling the shots in the kingdom of this world will pass away with it. But those who acknowledge their weakness and need and place their hope in the name of the Lord enter the kingdom that is eternal. A kingdom where the day of judgment is also the day that the blind receive their sight, the poor have the good news preached to them, the mute sing, the lame leap for joy, the captives are set free and the dead are raised to life again. Brothers and sisters, we are the blind, the lame, the mute, the unclean. We are the dead. And to be blessed by God is to receive grace for all the ways that we fall short of his healthy, holy wholeness. To be blessed by God is to be fully satisfied in him and transformed by him even in the midst of the intense vulnerability of our lives. Recall these words from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice. And be glad, John, for your reward is great in heaven. All these blessings are for those who stand in a place of need, in a place of acknowledgement of our lameness and our blindness, while the kingdom of God is breaking through. All these blessings are marks of the favor of God upon us, even while the sadness, disappointment, and violence of the present age continues to whirl around us. If you find yourself, spiritually speaking, in prison with John this morning, take heart. You don't have to figure out how to unlock that prison by yourself. You can't free yourself. But the Messiah did come to set the captives free. And you do have the agency just to call out to him. And embedded right here in our passage this morning are three concrete ways we can lay hold the blessings of God, even while we experience disappointment. 
The first, like bewildered John, you can send word to Jesus. Tell him whatever you need to tell him. If you are angry with him, tell him you are angry with him. If you don't like his standards, tell him about it. If you are feeling hurt or disappointment or betrayed because he has not fulfilled good expectations that you have of him, let him know. If you are dizzy and bewildered by the piping flutes and singing dirges of our generation and you suspect that your view of the Messiah is starting to become twisted and tainted in accordance with that music, tell him that too. No one is more capable of dealing with our disappointment in God than God himself. Number two. While it might have been a sheerly practical move for John to involve a couple of disciples in his inquiry to Jesus, we're going to glom onto that and name it as a sound spiritual practice. Do you know two mature believers who love you and who love Jesus? Invite them to carry your concerns to God and perhaps carry a heartening word back to you. Pro tip, Emmanuel prayer ministers are mature believers who love you and who love Jesus. You can start by asking one of them to pray for you during communion today, and you can follow up by asking another friend to pray for you later this week. Number three, when John the Baptist felt himself going squirrely about whether Jesus was truly the Messiah, Jesus responded with a description of himself from Scripture. When we get fuzzy about who Jesus is or what we can really expect from him, there is nothing quite as grounding as the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible. This is not because the witness of the Holy Spirit is not essential. It is essential. It's not because our experiences of God are not important. They are important. But it is really easy for us to deceive ourselves about what our experiences mean and about what the Holy Spirit might be doing, about the voice of God in our lives, the Bible provides us with a faithful testimony that stands outside ourselves and thus can witness to us. Now, the scriptures are not always easy to understand. Jesus is not always easy to understand. But if Jesus entrusted himself to the witness of scripture, we can trust it too. In times of disappointment, dig deep into the word of God and Pray that he might meet you there. Even now, the spirit of Jesus is moving on the face of the earth, through his church, through his word, under his own mysterious power. Everywhere that the spirit goes, men, women, and children are encountering a Jesus who upends our expectations. Blessed is the one who is not offended by him. Blessed is the one with eyes to see the kingdom of God breaking through the darkness and ears to hear the Messiah himself preaching the good news to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.